And my name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. Delighted to be with you guys this morning. Uh, we're going to start off this morning with something a little bit different. Uh, normally, I have a couple announcements for you. We're actually going to do a short prayer time together, um, which every time we do this, we always realize, especially if you're visiting, it's not something that often happens on the kind of the Sunday corporate moment where we take this time to corporately pray together. Uh, but when there becomes an issue that we think is, is helpful uh, for the church to really intercede together on, we, we try and take that. And so it shouldn't be too long, but we are going to have you guys kind of pray. You can just pray with who you came with. You don't have to do it necessarily with people that, uh, that you never met or don't know. Uh, but, you know, if you want to, you can do that too. Anyway, uh, we're going to be praying this morning for about five, ten minutes just about the immigration issue on our southern border. Um, and the reason why we want to do this is, well, there's many reasons. Uh, but I want to say a couple things on the front end, which unfortunately I feel like I have to say every time we talk about an issue that is uh, often, oftentimes has become very politicized and political within our culture. Um, what I'm about to say, uh, I, I need you to hear outside the context of American politics. We're not trying to make a stance or take, a, take any type of statement on what we think should be or shouldn't be. This is what the church should be caring about. Uh, every group in the world, whether it's a nation state or the church, we have a politic. There is a certain thing or rules that govern us, and we have that here in the church, and it's called the Bible. And Scripture drives the heart of the Christian. It drives what the Christian should care about, what we should pray about, and what we should do. And Scripture calls us to care and to pray and to intercede and to lament and to mourn with those who are hurting. Also, to look at situations around us and say, well, how can we best care for these situations? And one of the biggest ones is prayer. So uh, I probably don't have to describe to you just kind of some of the things happen on the southern border, but you have kids right now, even after the executive order passed by President Trump, that are still needing to be returned to their families, right? So the most recent number I saw was between 1,500 and 1,800, I believe, somewhere in there of kids who are separated from their families. And regardless of uh, where you truly line, it's, it's this that or the other, uh, that, is a, that is a saddening thing and a maddening thing that kids are without their parents right now. It's a difficult situation. And so we want to spend some time and pray for these kids who are hurting, uh, who are sad, who are missing their family members, that are lost, confused uh, in the midst of that, and that God would be ever present with them in this process uh, of hopefully them finding and being reunified with their families. And we're going to pray for the, the parents as well as they kind of navigate their process and seek to find their children and whatever the next steps are for them. And so uh, I want us to pray from a lens of the gospel and a lens of Christ that cares for all people and especially for children. Uh, and so let's, let's bow our heads, if you would, pray with who you came for, uh, and then about three minutes, two, three minutes, I'm going to close this up. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And I shall not want the thing. Jesus, we uh, just take this time this morning just to pray for these children um, that are scattered about uh, in various places. And Lord, we pray that you would bring upon their hearts right now comfort in your presence. Uh, we pray that you'd speak to them and that they would know the depths of love that you have for them, how amazing of a father you are, how near and dear you are to the brokenhearted, and God, how you just love kids. And Lord, we pray that you would bring comfort and peace and hope. God, there'd be joy. There'd be fun. There'd be, uh, man, just even like new friends made. There'd be 
positives, Lord, in this situation because you're sovereign and good and you love them. Lord, we do pray that you would uh, act swiftly in bringing them back to their parents. And we pray for the parents in that process, God, for peace for them as well. God, that they would experience your presence and your joy and your hope, God, as they search for their children and, um, and kind of navigate a difficult situation, not just the one they face today in finding their kids, uh, but the one that, that lies ahead of them. And so, Lord, we do pray and intercede, uh, Lord, and, and ask for your heart and all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, now, in the same vein that Scripture, right, absolutely calls us to care for the sojourner and care for the foreigner and pray for those amongst us uh, and to, to practice hospitality and love, uh, the Bible also calls us to pray and to intercede for our leadership and for the authorities above us. And so we're going to take a few minutes to do that as well uh, and pray for our government and pray for our president and pray for our Congress and pray for um, our state legislature and people that are in the, like the policy building arena because this is an issue amongst a bigger issue, which I think we all realize. And so um, that we all, listen, everyone in the room um, cares about kids, right? And we need to understand there's no one here who doesn't care about these kids. Um, everyone cares about justice. Everyone cares about this country. It's about us, um, I think, in wisdom, doing things the way Christ would have us do them as the church and interceding on behalf of the leadership that oversees this country that have been appointed by God to hopefully have his common grace as they make these decisions as well. Uh, and so let's together, if we could, for the next few minutes, uh, bow our heads in prayer, uh, pray for President Trump, uh, for all the Congress and legislatures they think through bills and passing and all that, and that God would instill his heart and his mind as they decide what is the future uh, as they move through this process. Let's do it now. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And I shall not want the thing. Lord, we submit to your sovereignty in everything. And we know that you are faithful and you are good. And that God, you know. You know the ins and outs of every situation in this world. Lord, and you have placed leaders and officials and governments, God, over these nations, God, to oversee them and to rule them. And Lord, we pray that your heart would be instilled in their decision-making. God, we pray that you grant them wisdom and insight and vision, how to best move forward, God, that honors the image of God in all people, that honors, God, what you have established, that honors, God, you that you would be glorified in this, and that God, in all things, that we would trust you, and that, Lord, that you would allow, in a swift way, for legislation to be passed within our nation, God, that unifies this nation, and unifies families, and unifies people, God, across so many different dividing lines. But as we know in your book of Ephesians, that you've already taught us, Lord, that because of the blood of Christ and of the gospel, Lord, that you have torn down every dividing wall of hostility, and so, Lord, nothing is outside the realm of your goodness and grace. And so, Lord, would you move in power? Would you bless President Trump with wisdom and insight? Would you bless the Congress and our, our, our legislatures and officials in our state and in our city? God, anyone who's just making decisions and having to work through all of this, Lord, we pray to God that you would be with them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Uh, last thing I'll just say is, you know, so uh, we returned home from Guatemala, you know, just a couple weeks ago, uh, and I gave you guys a little bit of an update about that last week, but there was, you know, there was an audio clip that was going around, and probably many of you heard it and stuff like that, and it was, it was of one of these young girls, a few girls, and they were just crying, you know, wanting and calling out for their, for their parents and wondering where their parents were, and, and there was a moment in, in the clip where they asked where the girl's from, and she says, Guatemala. And I tell you, I'm just driving in my car, and I just start bawling. Like, I just, like, uncontrollably, like, awkward sobbing in my car. Because, I mean, I just spent a week with those faces and those girls, right? Um, and, and, and could hear kind of in their sweet voices what that's like, uh, knowing the travesties that, that, that they have in their home country. And so um, there's lots of different things, right, that surround this. I understand that. Um, man, but just there's something about, right, like hearing a child cry that just is not right. Um, and the church needs to lament and be sad about that and sad about that. That's a reality. And listen, not just for this situation, but across our world, that there are people that are hurting and broken and the church needs to intercede, lament and pray consistently. And so I hope this isn't like the, hey, we prayed about it at church type of thing, but that the church would move to being a people of prayer that are in constant intercession for those who are hurting in our world. Amen? Yeah? Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to have to move quick, which you all know is tough for me. And so uh, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We'd love for you to follow along with us. Andy's going to come by and bring you one. We do this every week. Don't feel weird about it. If you don't own a Bible, you do now. It's a free gift to you. So just keep your hand raised, and Andy will bring that by. Thank you, Andy. Um, we have been in the book of Ephesians now for uh, just about 20-plus weeks. We're a little over halfway through our series. We decided to do 40 week, 42 weeks through the book of Ephesians, which some of you have been really excited about. Others of you have been very less excited about, which is okay. Uh, but I want you to know we're starting kind of a mini-series within a series today that we're going to do, well, it's seven verses today and then about seven more weeks on, I think, five verses. And so uh, if you didn't like how slow we're going, sorry, it's getting worse, okay? Um, there's been a switch in the book of Ephesians if you haven't seen it yet, and it happens pretty much today, but kind of had some trickles even before today, that in the first three chapters, three plus chapters, the beginning of chapter four, it's all about the gospel, right? If you pour through the first three chapters of a book of Ephesians, you get tremendous and beautiful theology and doctrine and truths about God and about our identity and about adoption and predestination and the love of God and all of these amazing things that solidify this is who you are, Christian. Like if you're in Christ, these are the things that you are now. This is your new identity. The gospel has saved you and made you free, raised you to new life. Like this is who you are. And then four, five, and six become so what? So, so in other words, the first three chapters are all, hey, know who you are, know who you are, know what God's done so that you live this thing out in a certain way. At the church, we call this gospel-centered and outward focused, that in everything we believe, that as Christians, we are to be centered around the gospel, and out of the gospel, the overflow of that relationship, the overflow of that belief and that knowledge of what he's done leads us into righteousness, leads us into the good works that God has prepared beforehand. And so what we get in 4, 5, and 6 is just a lot of tangible expression about what that so what is. 
Now, how many people are familiar or have ever seen a documentary on BUDS Navy SEAL team training? Has anyone ever seen that? BUDS training? Just two of you, three of you. Let me, let me just school you on this thing because it's incredible. So in order to become a Navy SEAL, which is what I wanted, one of the things I wanted to be when I grew up, because I remember watching, uh, what was it, Under Siege with Steven Seagal, and like how many people actually know that film? Raise your hand. It's, yeah, everyone over 35. Great. <laughs> like everyone's like, oh, you should, you should and you shouldn't go back and watch it. Ask your parents, okay? Um, so I remember watching it and thinking like, Navy SEAL, that's what I want to be. Now, there's this documentary about Bud's SEAL Team training. That's essentially the training that uh, someone in the Navy has to go through if they want to become a Navy SEAL. And it is known to be the most grueling, like, like test or uh, not competition, but like training in the world. That in order, if you complete this, that's then you become a Navy SEAL. And it's just incredibly difficult. They got guys staying up 48 hours plus, and you're lifting boats over your head, and you're treading water for hours, and they're yelling at you in your face. And it's just intense and crazy. But I remember this moment from the documentary that struck me this week as I was thinking through this gospel-centered, outward-focused idea. And they start asking the guy about the training, one of the, the SEAL team instructors. And they say, man, that's like so physical and so hard. And he says, you know, people always put a focus on the physical, but I'll tell you what, every single person that's here, they can handle the physical. It's not the physical stuff. These are the best of the best, the most fit guys in all the Navy. They can handle the physical. It's the mental stuff that breaks them down. And the whole purpose of the physical, the whole purpose of the entire training is to recenter them on their new identity that they can do everything that we throw at them or that will come at them in war, right? So, so it's this mental trick. It's this mind switch where they have to go from just saying, I'm just this normal average Navy, Navy guy to saying, no, no, you're a Navy SEAL, right? Like, like, the, like and not the animal, but like you are, a, you are this elite special force unit and nothing can stop you. Because this is truly who you are. So the whole process, this guy says, is rather the entire training, if you make it through it, is helping to confirm in the mind and heart the internal aspect of the Navy SEAL, you can actually do this because this is who you are. It's a mental piece, right? And everything from the first three chapters is just that. It gets really intense training for our minds to have to be able to process and remember you are not who you were. You're different. If you're here and you're a Christian, your identity has changed. And it's not this physical thing. It's not this outward thing that makes you a Christian, right? It's not, okay, if you do X, Y, and Z and you fulfill all the things on the checklist that all of a sudden now you're this excellent Christian. No, it's the things internal that inform the external. And so hear me, like over the next 20 weeks, you're going to hear a lot of, hey, we should be doing this. And hey, you should do this better. And yeah, you should be more loving. You should be more generous. You should be more sacrificial. You should be, you should be, you should be. And what I don't hear, my biggest fear is when we get into all this you should be is you go, okay, let me feel bad about it and so bad that I'll go do something and or I will just work really hard and try to be better because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what culture has taught me. And all of a sudden leave behind the gospel. Because if you just hear, like we're going to get to the end of the day and there's going to be some, we'll put on the new self and this is the way we should live. If you just run out of the room and forget everything we've talked about for the last 22 weeks, I tell you it will not last. And that the gospel has to continually be present in our life and we'll talk about that 
again as we get to the end. So I just wanted to give that as a caveat because the next handful of weeks are going to be a lot of, hey, do better, Christians. And, and listen, it's not do better to you. It's Vince, like do better. You're a Christian. Like this is what we're called to. And so you're going to hear a lot of that, but we're going to keep trying to come back to the gospel, circle, 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 over and over and over that we don't miss it. Now, Last week, uh, we talked about this idea that we're supposed to have this new vision for who we're supposed to be, right? Uh, like, what are we supposed to grow up to be? We, all, we asked the question, uh, hey, when you grow up, what do you want to be? And I'm just going to, I think, Eric, you were here, right, last week. So who do you want to grow up to be? Or what do you want to grow up to be? What? NBA player. No. No. Thank you. Michael. You failed already. It's been one week. It's one of our interns. That's a year two intern. We'll do better. Okay, so Michael, who do you want to be when you grow up? Jesus, right? So the answer was Jesus. And, and Eric didn't pay attention, but it was a really good sermon. Like, um, contrary to the illustration I tried to give, it was great. So go back and listen to it. But we talked about, hey, like, when we grow up, like, the new vision is not, hey, I want to grow up and be an NBA player, although that can be secondary, that the desire for our hearts should be, when I grow up, I want to be Jesus. Like, I want to be more like him, that when we close our eyes and we have a vision for our future, the desire should be Christ, Christ-likeness. And so then we say, okay, if that's where I want to be, how do I reverse engineer that? What do I need to be doing now that I am being conformed into the image of Christ more and more. In the same way that when you're a young kid and you have a vision for this is the job I want to work in, your parents say, well, then if that's true, maybe you should you start working on your jump shot, that type of stuff like that. And so Jesus is who we want to grow up to be like. Now, what this text does for us today is it starts off with Jesus, be like Jesus, Jesus is the best, and it's going to get into some don't do this, don't act this way, but do act this way stuff already. So it's going to give us the context for the next seven weeks of this put on and put off. Put on, or sorry, put off the old life, put on the new life is the language that we'll get. And so let's jump into Ephesians 4, verse 17, and let's begin. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So in contrast to last week, be like Jesus, right? This week saying, hey, don't be like the Gentile. And so these two things are kind of being put up against one another in compare and contrast mode. Say, be like Christ, don't be like the Gentile. Now let me give you a quick kind of addendum to this because we've been using the word Gentile quite a bit, which just means non-Jew. And throughout the book of Ephesians and what we know throughout that book is that God has united the Jew and the Gentile. And all the conversation about the Gentile up to this point has been truly positive because it's been about God uniting Jew and Gentile in the blood of Christ, securing us because of the gospel, um, but now we've made this transition into right practice, not just right doctrine, not just right internal God has saved me, but right practice. And so he looks upon the Gentile culture and says, that's not right practice, that there are things that are sinful and should not be acted upon. And that was the Gentile culture back in AD 60. So let's go through the list that he gives here. The first one is that they are futile in their mind. Futile means useless. They were useless in their minds, which is a very heavy indictment. They did not think about their actions. They just did stuff. They were impetuous, right? 
They didn't stop to collect and think. It was what was best in the moment, what I desired in the moment, what I thought best in the moment. I did. Second, they were darkened in understanding. They did not know truth, that the truth that they thought they knew actually darkened life, was, was cloudy, was not clear, was not the absolute truth that existed. The third one, that they are alienated from the life of God. They were distant. They did not know God. Fourth, they were ignorant and hard of heart, right? Ignorant and hard of heart. So even what they did, didn't know, they were too stubborn and proud to be able to listen and to learn. And so they remained in their ignorance instead of listening to truth as it was presented. Fifth, they were callous and apathetic. They didn't care. They wanted to just kind of do their own thing, experience their own freedom. And then lastly, they were given greedily, right, to every sensuality and every impurity. That greedily they chased after the impure things of the day. Now, this was the culture of the Gentile people in the city of Ephesus, which was a vast and large part of the population, a majority of the population of the city of Ephesus. In other words, the people who were shaping the culture of the city of Ephesus were Gentiles, okay? And this is the type of culture that the Jews found themselves living in. This is the type of culture that the church at Ephesus found themselves living in. Now, this is why I think this is really important, because I don't think it's too far a cry or too far a leap to look at uh, Ephesus in A.D. 60 and Flagstaff, the Western, well, our entire world, if you will, in America 2018. Flagstaff, like I don't feel it's this huge far leap that all of a sudden uh, humanity and culture has changed that much. When we really think about it, okay, uh, impetuous. Do we do we often we think culture? We do you think, hey, it's hey, what's best for me now? Or let me stop, think, and and you know, do what's best down the road. And cut. no, it's it's no, no, what's best right now? What do I desire now? And this kind of self quick gratification. Secondly, uh, is there this absolute truth? No, that's slowly going out the door. God has certainly been shown the door for a significant amount of years now. Um, there's this let me be me, right? I don't want to be held accountable. Let me have my own freedom thing, this faux freedom that pushes away people, this apathy to change, this ignorance. No, I don't want to be told this or other if it affects my life, and a rampant pursuit of immorality. Um, this, this isn't like a, like a huge shock, I think, to think, through. Well, this is pretty general to the culture today, too. So then I think the advice that Paul's going to give, not just today, but over the next six weeks, are absolutely imperative for us to live faithful lives as Christians. Because Paul's writing this as scripture. Again, like he says, now in verse 15, now this I say and testify in the Lord. In other words, if you don't, like if you're doubting me for a second, this is from God. Like this is from the Lord for you, church. Listen, this is the way we are called to live life. In this same type of culture. That if we want to be the faithful practitioners of the gospel that we learned in the first three chapters, then this is the way it has to carry itself out. So that's the way he takes us. So um, let's look at uh, this remedy as we move forward uh, that should help us. But um, my fear is maybe it doesn't help us. And I wonder if some of it, Paul was fearful too, because we see in verse 20, he says this, but that is not the way you learn Christ. But listen to verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So verse, so first verse 20, he said, that's not us. Like we don't, 
don't live that way. Like that's not, that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of Christianity. And so instead of uh, living in impetuousness, tossed to and fro by, by every kind of cultural whim, no, we, we sit and we pray and we engage and we ask counsel from those around us and then decide. Uh, we don't live in darkness, but rather we seek knowledge in everything. We're not distant from God, but rather reconciled to him. We don't live in pride, but rather humility and openness for the Spirit's work and the church's care. Uh, we don't live in apathy, but rather we live in engaged community where people can call us out. And we don't live in the pursuits of immorality, but rather a pursuit of holiness. We're called to live lives that reflected the Jesus that we have studied and the Jesus that we have learned and the Jesus that we know. We're called to live lives that would be a tangible, present reality to the question that used to be popular on bracelets of what would Jesus do? That when they look at the church, they would say, no, no, it's, it's not. It's not that. Like, it, it's not the Gentile. It's something wholly different from that. It's Jesus. That's what we see when we see the church. And so he says, man, that, that's who we are, okay? But what I find in verse 21 is very interesting. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him when we're taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. And I think you have to understand what's happening in Ephesus at this time and within the culture, and this would be not just in Ephesus, but across the kingdom as Christianity is spreading and people are getting saved, that false teaching and false doctrine had arisen within the community of faith trying to detract from who Jesus was. Right? You had all sorts of kind of different little uprisings and uh, what about this and different things that were popping up that would tear down the divinity of Christ, uh, that would tear down the message of Christ, that would say, yeah, it's this, but it's also this. And so you had these false teachings that were in there. And so Paul's saying, like, maybe, just maybe, you believed in a gospel in the beginning that wasn't really all that Christ-like. That potentially you got saved into the faith with a message that wasn't all that Christ-like. And I think that happens today, too. I think sometimes we get saved into a faith that does not call us to Luke 14, which tells us to count the cost of following Christ before we say yes. Because the cost is your life. The cost is this heavy weight of saying, no, no, like, Jesus, I die with you, and I'm raised with you as well. But there is this consistent, sacrificial life that I am called to in Jesus that cares about the other more than self. In fact, if we think about the life of Christ, if that is our ultimate goal, what do we think Jesus cared about the most? It seemed to be the glory of the Father in heaven and the sake of the other. And how do we know this? Because he died on a cross for the sins of the world, glorifying his Father in heaven by fulfilling the law perfectly and laying his life down that others might flourish. And so the question for us as the church is, is what type of gospel did we believe? What type of gospel did we get saved in? And was it the gospel of Jesus? Does it line up with him? In other words, will most of our actions, hopefully all, but let's just, let's just say most because we're not great all the time, right? Will most of our actions be able to survive the WWJD test? Would Jesus act the way you act? Would Jesus think the way that you think? Would he do what you do? Or did you believe in a gospel that left some of that behind? 
Did you believe in a gospel that when presented to you was, hey, listen, God loves you so much and he died for your sins and you are the center of the world. And Christian, that you are the best human and the best person and you have been given so much favor that you're better than the rest. Maybe you don't hear it in that language, but that's the stuff that gets pulled away sometimes. And maybe, just maybe, that the gospel that is shaping the church is a bit of a departure from the gospel of Jesus. And I'm not saying that's true here. I'm not saying that's true for any one of you. But I will say that I know, I know the last 15 years of my life since I became a Christian and I know I've had to have been discipled out of things that I was told real early on in my faith or things that I wasn't told that I should have been really early on in my faith that I had to be discipled out of over and over and over because I was saved into something that wasn't all that Christ-like. And I think Paul is nervous about this in the church in Ephesus as well. Yeah, guys, that's not us. We're not the Gentile culture. But that's assuming that you've been saved and you believe in the gospel that is presented to us in the Holy Scriptures by and proven through the life of Jesus. I just, I just wonder, I feel the weight of as we come to these texts and we get these, like, these things that we're going to come up to over the next handful of weeks. Like, we're going to talk generosity in like five or six weeks. I think it comes up kind of towards the end of this little mini-series within a series. And that's just an easy one to pick on. But if, if truly, if Christians were saved into the gospel of Jesus, like this, this gospel that Paul seems to be pointing to, this gospel that he would assume is the embodiment of the life of Christ amidst the church, I mean, the way that the American church, and I'll just speak about us because we're part of it. This isn't just like the American church is the worst and the rest of the churches are great. No, no, I'm just, let's just talk about us, okay? The way that we do generosity in the American church, based upon if we're trying to compare us to the gospel, is absolutely laughable. It just is. It doesn't add up. If we believe all the things that the Bible tells us about who he is. And if we honestly believe that we're supposed to glorify the Father and care for the sake of the other more than self. It doesn't add up. Like the, like let's, the numbers do not add up. And so we have to be honest with ourselves and begin to triage ourselves in the church and say, why is that? And I think maybe one of the issues is the same issue that concerned Paul back in AD 60 should concern us now. What gospel do we believe in? And is it centered around the person of Jesus? There's this brilliant book called Love Walked Among Us. And if you're the reading type, I couldn't encourage you to read it more. And it's, it's about the life of Jesus. It's about the person of Jesus. And here's the thing. There's a ton of books out there about what Jesus has done, what he's accomplished, about the cross, about the resurrection, all that stuff. There's not a lot of books just about Jesus. Like, like, a, like a biography of Christ, of this God-man. And the title of the book, Love Walked Among Us, like he walked, he was the embodiment of love and everything he did. And he is the center of the gospel with which the church globally is called to. And so is that the gospel that we've been saved to? 
I long, okay, and, and all of this, please hear me, is driven from a place of personal conviction and is driven from a place of, and as I look out into the world and you see all the various issues that are existing, so we pray for this immigration thing. God, it, it's supposed to be, friends, right, family. It's supposed to be that the world will look to us and say, what do we do? And we should say, do this, and it's all done. Like, it's supposed to be, and hear me, like, I get this. This is like dreamland, Vince. This, wouldn't, this can't happen and all that stuff. But I, but I really want to say, well, why not? But, man, if, if we had an issue at the border with kids not being able, they had to be separated from their parents because there had to be legal proceedings, why is the church in America not saying, all right, well, we have billions of dollars. Let's go build some luxury freaking guest houses. Sorry for the freaking. Some luxury guest houses all along the border and say, we're going to go down there. We're going to send our best volunteers. We're going to live there. We're going to care for kids. Why are we not doing that? Now, hear me. I, I understand. Like, we, not everyone's got just tons of money to be throwing stuff. How do we organize that stuff? There just seems to be a disconnect. We're supposed to be the hope of the world. Instead, we're kind of thought of, they're the problem. That doesn't make sense if the gospel of Jesus is the one that we live by, okay? And again, this is born out of personal convictions. why I'm kind of, I'm sweating. I sweat all the time. Anyway, you know that. could be like freezing it here. I'd just be going. But man, I, I just long, I long for the church to be the beacon of hope, the city on a hill, the salt and light, like all the amazing metaphors that God gives for his people that we've learned in the book of Ephesians about our identity, that we're going to see over the next handful of weeks about the way this is supposed to be. I long for that for us. And I long for that for the sake of our city and of our state and of our country and of our world. Because all these people, right, all these stories, all these political issues, listen, and I get there's political conversations to happen on the American political landscape level. I get that. Have those. Engage well. Be patient. Do all that stuff, Okay. But listen, like every one of those issues is just an issue about people, about men and women made in God's image with which the, the, the church is supposed to be the main beacon of hope for, okay? And so it's just a question that, that I wasn't, it was also saying I think we do this, but also just a question that you guys should think about yourself, but also feel convicted by and know that it's happening, but also ask yourself, okay? Um. So, and here's the thing, if you doubt it's possible, this is just kind of the history of God's people. Like, we've just, we've, we've just done this for a long time, right? If you go all the way back to the right in the beginning, you go back to Eden, man, they just said, ah, no, I'm going to go this direction, okay? And I'm going to go with what this guy's saying instead of God, what you're saying. You go through Old Testament Israel, it was like, ah, no, we're going to go ahead and just believe what these other countries are saying to us, these other nations, we're going to believe their God's not our God. You get into the New Testament, you get into kind of post-Constantinian Christianity as, I mean, just on and on. Like, we do this. So we tend to just syncretize with the culture and say, no, no, no. Well, Paul is telling the church in Ephesus, don't be like that. You're something wholly different. Why? Because you have Jesus. Because the Spirit of God moves in his people. Because the gospel is true and he set you free. And he's created a new new life. And so let's, let's get to the last text here. Verse 22. So put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires 
and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So put off the old self. Like, like take off. And so literally the put off, take off, like the language that's being used here is the same language as take off and put on your clothing. Like get dressed and get undressed. So take off the old self. Like get undressed with the old way of living, the old way of thinking, your old worldviews that shaped you and say, no, 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 that's not me anymore. Instead, clothe yourself, get redressed with the new self, the new life. Now, again, like I said, we always need to return to the gospel. There can be this, I think what we often kind of see this conversation is this spectrum, right? This is old life, this is new life, okay? And then we're somewhere kind of on this like spectrum here, kind of working our way, right? That's the whole idea, like we kind of last week, like grow up and become more like Jesus. Like that should be the vision, is to get over here, what is beautiful about verses about verse 24 is that we often think there's this act as if mentality. Like, okay, I'm just gonna like if you know what that means, right? So act as if you're this, right? A- act as if you're already Jesus, and then live like that. Here's the thing: what we need to understand, Christians, is you're not okay theologically, doctrinally, from an identity standpoint. You are not on a spectrum. You're already here. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean you're glorified in heaven and you're perfect. Here's what, I, here's what I'm saying. You are not in process of becoming new. You are new. Okay? Because notice verse 24. And put on the new self, ready? Created after the likeness of God. Not, not, not like, okay, over time. It's saying you are now created in the likeness of God. The new self is made. And so in the same way, like going all the way back to the beginning with the illustration about the Navy SEAL, they needed to know who they were and that they could and were capable to finish the training and succeed on every mission that they go on. Listen, listen church, like you're new. The gospel says you have been set free that you are no longer enslaved to sin and unrighteousness, that all of this stuff that we just heard about the Gentiles, that is not you. Now, that doesn't mean we don't struggle. That doesn't mean that sanctification is not a real thing. It doesn't mean we don't need to grow up into Christ. All those things are true, okay? But at an identity level, who you are, you are brand spanking new. And you have to live in the new identity instead of the old. And so that means that daily, daily you're putting on Jesus, which means daily you're reminding yourself of who you are in Christ. Daily you're reminding yourself of the gospel. Daily you're pouring through and revisiting. Why do we think, listen, we don't tell you to read the Bible every day because you have to to go to heaven. It's read the Bible today so you can wake up every day and say, this is what I want to put on. I want to put on my real identity, Jesus because that's who I am. That's the imploring, is this daily decision to constantly put on Jesus. And we're going to talk specific issues of how we do this over the next handful of weeks, but I want to land and share with you guys this, uh, like one story and then this quote that I love. But my, my son, uh, if you guys have watched Moana, and I know sometimes in the Christian world it's like, don't watch Moana, we watch Moana, and I'm sorry, okay? Um, and so my son just loves Moana, like thinks it's, like, it's, it's kind of his new movie. He was on Frozen for a while. Uh, I think before that was, 
What trolls? Yeah, Andy knows. Thanks. Trolls is on before that. And he always adopts one character from each movie, and that becomes like who he is, right? So trolls. It was Branch, but he called him Branch because my wife's from South Africa, and he's got a freaky accent. And so, um, and so he would call him Branch, right? So he was Branch, and he was Branch for Halloween, all that stuff. Uh, and and then he got to Frozen, and I was like, sweet, he's gonna be like, you know, whatever. The, what's the dude uh, with the big burly guy? What was he? Kristoff, yeah, Kristoff, but no, he was Elsa, right? He's like, I'm Elsa, and I was like, all right, dude, do you, you know, and so he's shooting, you know, ice everywhere and stuff, and now his new thing is he's Maui, like he's Maui, and the best thing is, like, not only is he Maui, I'm Maui too, right? So he goes, no, we're both Maui's, I was like, all right, that's impossible, okay, (laughs) and so he gets up in the morning, and it's like every morning now, he comes in, he wakes us up, he says, good morning, Maui, and I say, I say, hey, Maui, he goes, how was your day? And I go, and I start to tell him, like, about, like, just my day and how life is going. And he goes, no, 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 how's your day going? Maui, like that. And I go, oh, oh, well, earlier today I was on an island and a girl showed up with a boat. And then he's happy. Like, that's what he's looking for, is he wants me to tell my day from the perspective of a fictional character named Maui, Right. And so I tell him the whole thing. I'm like, and then we sailed across this thing to return the heart of Tafiti. And he's like, oh, yeah. And he goes, I was there, too. I was like, I know. And so, so here's the thing. Like, here's the thing. Is there something, right? Like my son, he, he has this, just, this wonder and this awe of this story. And he wants to live in it so much that he's bringing other people into it that it is his reality, Oftentimes, I have to be like, hey, like, I'm like, Finley, come here. He goes, no, it's Maui. I'm like, no, dude, like, your name's Finley. Like, we need to take a break, you know. But I got to pull him back in this because he's so enamored and in awe of the story that he fully puts himself into it and brings other people into it with himself. And I love that. And I think there's something that he's on to that we adults could learn from. To, to really allow our hearts to have this wonder and this awe over the mission of God again. Over the purpose of God. That from the beginning was not to just create this incredible city for, well, actually from the very beginning probably, but then after the fall, right? When he was redeeming the world was not to raise up Israel to just have this great party together. Right? Genesis chapter 12, that he would raise up Israel. He called through Abram and said, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Would the church recapture and reimagine and re-envision the awe and wonder and splendor of the mission of God? And that's what the next weeks are about. It's not about you being a better person. You're, you're secure in Christ. You're justified in Jesus Right? The blood has covered you. So when you hear me say, you need to be more generous, yes, you do. But it's not so you're a better person. It's that we would continue to embark on this lifelong, like centuries-long vision and mission of God to redeem the whole world and use his church to be part of that. I land with this quote from G.K. Chesterton from another book called Orthodoxy, which, again, if you're the reading kind, phenomenal, you should read it. It says this. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game that they especially enjoy. See, a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence, of life because children have an abounding vitality. 
because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has just never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is far younger than we. And so I want to pray over us that our hearts would so just have that kind of spirit of the child, right, that just lives in awe and desire to embark in something greater than ourselves and into the story with which Paul is trying to move the Ephesian church, a story of the redemption of the world through God's grace and his people. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you for the gospel that says that, that we could take honest looks at ourselves and at our church and that we could seek more, that we could seek to constantly be refined and grow up into Christ because we know we're already secured by your grace. We thank you for your blood, Jesus, that you shed, that covers us, that washes away and makes us white as snow. That's who we are, Lord, but we know it to the depths of ourselves. Lord, would you remind us this week in moments where we grow in frustration or, or callousness, or we want to pursue immorality, or we want to pursue the things that our culture and the Gentile culture in the day of Ephesus, God, wanted to pursue, that, Lord, we were reminded not be a better person, be a better Christian, but rather who we are in you because of what you've done. Lord, man, you're so good and so faithful. And please use that goodness and faithfulness, Lord, to conform in us hearts that would live in awe and would be so desirous to live out the story, God, that you are writing, a story of redemption in this world. Thank you that you paved the way through your road to Calvary. Lord, we pray your blessings. God, we pray your insight and your wisdom for all of us as we seek to apply and seek to move forward and to walk in your light and be your people motivated by the spirit by your grace and truth in jesus name we pray amen uh, so now as always uh, we're going to take